We've a lot of ground to cover this morning. Some of it, uh, I think, will uh, be of considerable uh, concern to you. So let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to the fifth chapter of James, beginning at the seventh verse, for our lesson on prayer and faith. James, the fifth chapter, beginning at the seventh verse. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience or steadfastness of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, or ecclesia, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias, Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now, in our consideration of this lesson, we must uh, definitely bear in mind some of the things that we talked of yesterday in connection with the subject of the power of prayer. And particularly, our minds go back to the first century and the brethren who were involved in the workings of the Lord and the development of the truth at that time. Abiding faith associated with a, a very fervent and instant prayer, approach to the Father through prayer, in whatever circumstances they found themselves, was probably the most outstanding characteristic of the first years of the apostolic age after Christ's ascension to the Father. They were surrounded by evils which manifested themselves in many ways. 
bitter persecutions, even unto death. Very, very heartless discrimination at the hands of their pagan contemporaries and of the jealous Jews who were very much opposed to the development of the word of the gospel in that period. And it required an abiding faith, a resting in the privilege of turning to God through Christ in prayer to carry them through those evil times. They must have cultivated a very real sense of the awareness of God working with them and sustaining them as he answered their prayers in a most remarkable way. Jesus, as we have considered before, had encouraged such a response to that as that to the Father. We have already considered several times his words, All things whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, believing, it shall be done unto you. And they rested on that, and they uh, uh, took refuge in it, and it became a very living, vital thing in their spiritual lives. Nevertheless, he allowed times of trial, times of temptation, to overtake them. Severe and bitter persecutions arose for the purpose of developing their spiritual characteristics, for making them or bringing them into positions where they must look to him through Christ and to him only in faith and come to him in prayer that they might be delivered. That was their source of refuge. That was their way of escape. For the source of their faith, we go back to a period, and it's been mentioned several times, to the life of him whose faith they were exhibiting. That is, they were of Abrahamic faith in more ways than one. Abrahamic faith was not only doctrinal in its overtones, it was abiding in its endurance under trial, under overwhelming trial. And so we go back, and this 22nd chapter of Genesis has been referred to several times. I heard it referred to just a while ago in Brother uh, Kerwin's class, and rightly so. But we want to look at it from perhaps a little added aspect. Let's go to it. Genesis 22. First and second verses. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or try Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains I will tell thee of. Now the way this story is presented in Genesis, many of the details which we would have found most helpful are omitted. But from other scriptures and from other aspects of the life of Abraham, uh, we can supply them in our own reading. 
Now, we, we, we don't need to exercise much imagination to realize the impact, impact this would have on Abraham as a father, as a human being. This son, he had waited 14 years from the promise to the birth. And his whole hope for the future of the promise was centered in the continuance of life of this boy, this young man, and of him having progeny. Abraham's whole hope was bound in. We aren't told the impact it had on him, but we can imagine it. Even if it hadn't had the, uh, the hope of the promise resting in, any father would have shrunk from such a, from such a, a testing, from such, a from such an obedience and compliance with such a command. But the story simply passes over that phase. Let's go on. A night passes. Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. He didn't say, I will go, and I will come back. He said, I and the lad will go, and return again to you. And Abraham, said unto the, uh, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand, and a knife, all the equipment. And they went, both of them, together. And Isaac spake unto Abram his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now let's look at these words. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went both of them together. Now, we think for a moment, he had gone through a night. Now here was a man that when he had learned that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were to be destroyed for their wickedness, what did he do? He petitioned God, he petitioned the Lord, that they might be spared. And he persevered in that petition. Fifty, forty, five, thirty, and so on, down to ten. For their welfare... How much more would he on this occasion petition his father for some way out of this calamitous situation? We have reason to imagine that the night prior to his uh, departure for Mount Moriah was spent in agonizing prayer. And we have reason to believe that in that prayer Abraham had an answer, an answer that satisfied him that God would do all things well, that the end would justify his faith in God. I believe, and I think we have reason to believe, he had an answer that was helpful because the next morning he, gets, he takes all the equipment, He's a faithful man. He takes his son, the wood, the knife, the fire. But when, I, when Isaac asks him the obvious question, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
The answer is one of a man who is fully convinced that God would work out this matter as he felt would be good in the end. We believe he had some answer through prayer to that situation. His answer was, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And the apostle, in writing to the Hebrews, seems to uh, give us that same thought. We're thinking now of faith coupled with prayer. And in uh, Hebrews 11:17, we're told by the apostle, By faith when Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. The knife was at his throat. He was as good as slain, as far as Abraham was concerned. His faith went that far. He was sustained that far. And he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That's where Abraham's hope lay. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. That was Abrahamic faith. That was the response of a man to, to God who accounted in that faith and in holding on to the lifeline a petition to him under any and all circumstances in which he found a way of sustaining himself, the way of escape in the hour of trial, in the hour of distress, in the hour of difficulty. He called upon God, and God heard. That was the faith of the brethren of the first century. That must be the faith of the brethren and sisters of the 20th century. If we are to endure and to come through that which may lie before us. We come back again to Christ's day for a further confirmation. We've had several. Remember the Canaanitish woman? What was it about her that caused Christ to answer her petition in spite of the fact that he answered her at first it's not meat to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. What was the thing that she persisted in? Her faith. O woman, great is thy faith. Let, let, but let's go back to that and see a point that we, as his disciples, might do well to take heed to. Matthew 15. She, in the 22nd verse, uh, presents her petition. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. Now look, let's look at the attitude of the disciples. His disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. She troubles us. She impedes, perhaps, our, our journey. Well... That wasn't Jesus' attitude. He demurred, yes. But because of her faith, he says in the 28th verse, 
O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. What was the controlling factor here then? Faith was the controlling factor. Faith on the part of this woman. We have another instance of a nobleman, of a centurion, in the 8th chapter of Acts uh, of Matthew. Uh, a Roman, again, who has a sick servant. He, uh, he comes to Jesus. He asks Jesus to heal him. Jesus was going to uh, 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 where he was. I will come and heal him. But the centurion has enough faith and answered in the 8th verse, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. What was Jesus' response in the 10th verse? When Jesus heard it, he marveled. He marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And in the 13th verse, Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed from the selfsame heart. Again, what was the controlling factor? Faith. Faith. Though this man was not of, of, of Israel, we could point to a, a number of such uh, things. Now thinking back to the woman, the Canaanitish woman, can we draw a certain lesson from the attitude of the disciples? A profitable lesson. We, we might ask ourselves, what is the lesson? Had we been present, would we have on that occasion been moved to respond as Jesus did? Or would we have reasoned as did the disciples in their preconceived ideas or notions as to the ministry of Christ and as to the limitations he would observe? It's a good question. God responded most remarkably on the basis of the faith of these people. Both instances and others which we have considered are directly related to faith and to prayerful petition, a reaching out for, to him for help. And who among us can say that God's ear is not open to, to those who call upon him today in the same degree of faith and humility. Can we seek to impose our own limitations on God's response? Now, let's go thinking about those things. To back to the opening chapter that we read, the fifth chapter of James. Beginning at verse 13, we see several aspects of prayer exhibited here. 
In verse 13, it is written, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. What is that? That's personal prayer. Is any among you? Is any among you merry or afflicted? There is personal, individual prayer. Let's look at verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. So what have we here? United prayer. The prayer of the ecclesia or its representatives. There is ecclesial prayer then. United prayer. Let's look at verse 15. The prayer of faith shall save. There is what kind of faith? Of what kind of prayer? Believing prayer. Prayer of faith. Let's look at verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. What have we there? Mutual prayer. Prayer for one another. And we close, we look at the uh, second sentence. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And there we have, as we said yesterday, a key uh, to this whole matter that we should burn our minds. The effectual fervent prayer and what it avails. We look at verse 17. And here James has been doing as we have done throughout this week, of going back and considering God's work in the past. And here he considers Elijah, who, though of like passions as we, prayed how earnestly for, uh, that it not rain, and it didn't rain. And then he had prayed again, the same earnest prayer, and it rained. So there we have earnest prayer, persevering prayer, and let's look at verse 18. We, we have hinted at He prayed again. The heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. There we have continued prayer. Now, there are many other places in which these things are brought out, but here they are sort of condensed. And that's one of the reasons we have uh, referred to this chapter for a condensation uh, of this, this matter, a focusing of attention on several of the aspects of prayer, which are very important to us if we're going to properly consider the matter. Now let's note, in all these things, faith, again we say, is the primary factor, the controlling factor in this, in this business. By this is meant that our faith is the thing that greatly determines the way in which God will respond. If it is a careless, half-hearted faith couched with doubts as to his response, then we ourselves, brethren and sisters, have hindered him. We have hindered God in his ability, we might call it, to respond under those circumstances. Let's look at Matthew 9, 9th chapter, 27th to 29th verse. 
for some words of Jesus along this along this line. Oh yes, this is the case of the blind uh, men that came to him, you recall. Uh, Matthew 9, beginning at 27, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? Would he have been able to do it anyway? Did he have the power to do it? Yes, he did. But that isn't the point. The point was that he could, in justice to his, to his father's own righteousness, he could only respond on this basis that his father had responded, the basis of belief and faith. He isn't going to force himself, his love, his goodness on anybody. He responds to those who look to him in faith and love and obedience. And so, the question, Believe ye I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. Hi, Charles. I think they recognized who he was and they understood what he would do and his power as the Son of God. The, yes, they did. They were believing Jews and their faith and their belief in his power and in his probably future uh, was the uh, controlling factor here. Now, then faith. Again, we repeat and we are reiterating this for a purpose that faith is the factor which controls this whole matter of how God will respond. Our knowledge of his will, which is revealed to us in our reading and comprehension of the word, then becomes another very important element because the word, without it, can, do we know what to believe and how? Do we? Would you know how to have faith in God without the word, Brother Ralph? Of course you wouldn't. The word then, understood and believed, produces faith and understanding. The word will guide us in our prayers, will reveal to us our needs according to his will, will clearly define our failures, will cause us to recognize our dependence upon God. And in the final extremity, when we are so low that we don't have the words, we can only, as the apostle in the 8th chapter of Romans tells us, we can only with groanings come to God unuttered, Un unable perhaps to put into words the sorrows 
of our hearts, our needs. And Jesus steps in as our advocate, as our mediator, and makes up the deficiency. Such is the power of prayer accompanied by faith and perseverance. That eighth chapter of Romans we had to, of course, had reference to is the 28th verse. Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now in, in the days of the first century, the Holy Spirit was at work. It has completed that word, brethren and sisters. It has been withdrawn. We have today the Spirit Word, as we have been saying, that conditions our thinking and our mind and helps us in our approach to God. It filters our prayers. But in these times, when we can't put into words our needs, sometimes, then, Christ takes over, our advocate with the Father. He knows our needs, doesn't he? He's the high priest who has gone through the same situation. And he then presents our petition. Now, while we're on the subject, we're going to look a little deeper into it. In rightly dividing the word, we need first to remind ourselves that unlike the first century, we're not living in an age of open or angelic. We're conditioned by early training, by uh, perhaps a failure to dig into this to see what is there for us. We are each of us probably uh, going to view some of these things with mixed feelings, uh, with a, a, a point of view that may result in our viewing them differently, or making a different application, but that shouldn't interfere with our capacity as brethren and sisters to calmly reason about them. Now let's look at verses at verse 13, 14, and 15 as an example. Again, the question is asked, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. That is a reasonable thought. At all times, as we have brought out, we should have a ready approach and response in thanksgiving or in petition for help to our Father. So prayer is in order under any circumstance. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Now, right there, as Christadelphians, we have a firm and well-grounded repugnance, a deeper version against so-called faith healing. And we have a proper desire to avoid any similarity of conduct as is so grossly practiced 
by uh, causing God's name to be blasphemed among the charlatans uh, that we, we know misrepresent this matter so viciously and deceive people so viciously today. There are still Simon Magnuses among us as they were in Paul's day, but we don't have the power to deal with them that Paul has. Now, however, is there some, some help here that we need? Is there a word of comfort? Is there a proper application of the principle that is so misapplied which can be applied more helpfully to our lives as God's people. All of us would admit, if there is, we need it. In this verse, it is said, is any sick among you? There is a, a kind of distress. We've all gone through our times of very distressful illness, in which surely, at some point or other, we have turned to God. We've called in the doctor. We've done all we can. He hasn't helped us. Doctors aren't magicians. We need help. We turn to God. We ask Him for help. Perhaps our illness persists. We need help, perhaps, that we haven't availed ourselves of. We ask our brethren and sisters for help. Well, can they do anything for us, really? Physically, they can do a little. Just as a doctor has done. But perhaps this thing is a thing which we need a higher power to enter into this matter. And thus the apostle here is recognizing a condition which many of us have found and may find ourselves in a position to ask the brethren and sisters to come and with their united prayers in this matter strengthen us and help us to bear this distress. And if it be the Lord's will, and there are key words in this matter, and if it be the Lord's will to lift us up, to help us, Now this principle does not apply only in illness. This principle applies in many distresses. Think of a young brother, again we mentioned yesterday, taken from his family, his home, and for Christ's sake called to witness for the truth under circumstances in connection with conscientious objection, public service, that are just extremely distressing to him. He feels a great sense of weakness. He wonders if he'll be able to, to carry on. Can we help him? Yes, we can, brethren and sisters. We, as his ecclesia, can petition God to strengthen this young man, to lift him up, to, so that he'll go forth with a feeling that God is with him, and that we're with him, that our prayers are going with him. And we're asking God to strengthen and help and sustain him. And brethren and sisters, we have no idea how effective that is. 
not only on the young man. It strengthens him beyond any of our, our concepts because we aren't in him, he is. But it also is pleasing to God that we are entering in and sharing our brother's burden in the only way that we really can. We're praying for him. We're asking God to be with him. There are many other ways of distress that these matters occur, which brethren and sisters should not stand alone. Their brethren and sisters should stand with them. And there are times when prayer is the only way in which we can enter in and help lift them up and heal them of their distressed state of mind and perhaps even physical illness that enters into, into this matter. This, brethren and sisters, is the exercise of collective faith of the body of Christ through prayer that is most powerful and most pleasing to the Father. Now, we're not advocating that you forget to call the doctor. We all need to lay hold on the, the ways in which God has provided. We remember the fact, who was one of the most famous physicians in Scripture? Luke. He traveled with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had a bodily affliction. He was greatly distressed by it. He prayed to God for, its, for, for help. But during this period, can we imagine Luke as a physician would fail in his ministrations to Paul? We don't know what it was. Some have thought it was his eyes, blinded and, and, and superating perhaps uh, with the result of the vision to Damascus. Others have thought, and with the same good reasoning, that it was a, a severe uh, case of malaria reoccurring, caught in the coasts of uh, Asia Minor, that caused him this great distress. Luke ministered to him. Remember Paul uh, advised Timothy what did he advise him? Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. We don't neglect the common sense treatment of illness, but neither should we neglect, neither should we, uh, put it this way, neither should we defend, uh, uh, depend on the arm of flesh, neither should we exhaust all natural uh, health and only turn to the Father in our hours of extremity. Brother James, I think the class, if you will, consider just what you said there. If you turn over to the second chronicle, the sixteenth chapter, and the twelfth verse, I'd like to this class to consider this man in conjunction with All right, let's turn to it quickly. Second Chronicles sixteen what? Uh, twelve. Sixteen twelve. All right, read it, Brother Ned. And Asa was in the thirty and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet, until his disease was exceeding great, yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. That's a pretty good verse in the matter. Now, I believe this has been left on record, not particular for that day and age, but in my conversations with brothers and sisters, it seems to me like that uh, there's far too much confidence placed in modern hospitals, new drugs, and not resorting under the God of Israel. And I think this ties in very effectively with James, and also when he says over there, put not our trust in the arm of flesh. An arm of flesh can be medicine or any other thing which when we leave God out of it. 
I think this is a danger here that we, we, we sometimes resort to all the natural means first and then at the last extremity maybe go to God. Now what you're saying in other ways is we should balance our thinking in this matter. There's a time and a place for the physician and Brother Paul Byrd is, 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 uh, is, however, I'm sure will be one of the first to say, there are things he cannot accomplish. There are things beyond the power of modern medicine. And in the life of the believer, what is the solution? Do we stop at the power of modern medicine when it has failed? Or do we reach the point where there's nothing left to do but call on God? Is it, should we reach that point in the matter? We bring him hand in hand. Along with our call to the doctor, we communicate with our Father. We can pray to God that the doctor will be, give him the knowledge to help him. Ah. Brother Kerwin, you're, what you said there at that table down there, I think ought to be said in the class about your and <coughs> what that doctor said when you walked out of there. I think this all applies since we're on this subject. Would you care to contribute your thought? Well... This is a miracle. First of all, I will say this, that I stand here living today as the result of my own prayer, of the prayers that I asked of the Brotherhood from coast to coast, the prayers of my wife, and when I was in the hospital, medical records told me afterwards that uremic poisoning to the extent of 60% in the blood is always fatal. I had 84% according to the hospital records in my blood. The hospital said, and several doctors joined, the head of the hospital said, he doesn't have a chance, not one chance. When I was discharged from the hospital, I said to the doctor, and he said to me, it is more than medical skill that brought you out of here. I said there was prayer. He responded, we know it. That's the reason. The answer to prayer, a miracle in the 20th century. This brother, thank you, Brother Ralph. This brother certainly should give us something to think about in this connection. We might all, might each of us, be able to offer some kind of experience along these lines. Thank you. 
great deal to be thankful for then, as is Brother Ralph. Now, uh, we, as I say, each of us may be, might be able to offer something along this line, but there are other things which uh, we, we would like to continue with in the hope that we will have a little time left. Because we, we are into a subject which has, we don't want to have it, leave it with, with uh, any portion of it hanging in the air that can be misunderstood. We are not advocating that we go out here and start practicing faith healing. We are not advocating that we uh, assume the position the so-called uh, Pentecostalists have, the Holy Rollers and others, who uh, we're not uh, advocating we adopt any such approach. Neither should we be tending toward the cold formalism of the prayer book religion of some of the established churches who uh, in their prayers have, have developed a cold formality that fails to find a uh, <clears throat> similarity to the zeal, the fervency, the spontaneity that, that, that characterized the first century brethren in their reaching out to God for help. Prayer book religion is no, is no part of Christadelphian uh, religion. Neither is the ex extremity of Pentecostalism. But there is a scriptural approach to this matter, which, and I don't think I'm overly critical in saying that there is a, an indication that some ecclesias are losing sight of. There, the, the meetings lack that spontaneity, that fervor, that zeal, that fervency in prayer that we need to come together as a unit on and present our united petition to the Father in times of distress and in times of rejoicing where a particular brother or sister may be immeasurably helped due to the faith and love we manifest to God in coming to Him and asking Him to help according to his will in this matter and so that we don't stand alone so that we don't depend on the arm of flesh so that we help our brother and sister in distress that they may be raised up and elevated to that spiritual plateau in which they realize that God is there and that we're there and the three of us all working together are sustaining them and helping them. Yes, and perhaps even healing them if it is according to His will. Now, we, we want to cover another point. Because a problem is raised in this, we don't want to overlook it. The Scripture answers. The, the problem is raised, the discouragement, perhaps, that results. When this is done, and it's done in many ecclesias. It isn't done in ours. We've never practiced it. And I think it's our loss. But there are ecclesias that have done this. And problems have arisen. Uh, prayer is offered. 
Very sincere, friend. The brother doesn't recover. Another brother does. The vital point is overlooked. Someone questions and is discouraged by the fact that one brother recovers or sister recovers and another lingers in uh, a situation which the question occurs, why? Why? Well, let's look for a helpful consideration at that point. To that case of the Apostle Paul, we referred to a moment ago. Maybe God is helping in a way we can never know. And maybe it's a far better way than we uh, are able to understand. Let's look at, at, at 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, in which the apostle outlines his affliction. 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, beginning at the 7th verse. And lest I should be exalted above measure, in other words, to prevent my being exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And this, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And not only did he beseech the Lord, he asked the brethren and sisters on many occasions to pray for him, to make him the subject of their petitions, which they no doubt did. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then the apostle gives his reaction. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, we all grasp the fundamentals of the apostle situation here. There are things which God does for us, blessings that he may bestow upon us, which the, which the flesh, unaided, does not react properly to. Too much success can make a brother make shipwreck of the faith. You know it's happened. Too much discouragement can also have the same effect. In both cases, we need God's help. In this case, Paul would not have been the wonderful apostle, the understanding, the man that he was, the one who always gave God glory, had he been left to himself in the exultation that he received in his possible three years in Arabia, when he said he received visions and utterances of paradise concerning the third heaven, which it was not lawful for a man to utter. He had been given a blessing of the Almighty that none else had. And God knew that it was too much for, the, for flesh and blood 
left by itself to do the work that he had for him to do unless a compensating factor entered in to keep the flesh down. And so, he in his love sent this affliction on the apostle. And Paul, in his knowledge of God and of the word, recognized finally, after three times he besought the Lord, he received an answer. We won't receive such an open answer, but Paul did. But he finally recognized what God was doing. Most, and his reaction was, most gladly, therefore, he recognized this principle, that God's grace, God's favor that he exhibited to him in other ways was sufficient for him. For God's strength was thereby perfected in Paul's weakness or as a result of the weakness that came upon him as a result of this affliction. So his reaction was what? One of bitterness? No. no. He learned the lesson through this affliction. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may continue to rest upon me. That was in danger. Had Paul exalted himself as a result of this situation, that was, he was in danger of losing that. He was in danger of being lifted up too much for God to help him in any other way than for putting upon him this affliction. So somebody might say, not knowing this, the end from the beginning, not realizing why God sent this as the apostle, they might have said, hmm, there's something wrong in the apostle Paul's life. The Lord's afflicting him. He must have some kind of a, of a besetting sin uh, that uh, he, the, the Lord's punishing him for. Remember, that's what the uh, Job uh, was accused of, some secret sin. That kind of judgment is, of course, entirely out of order, out of place, and is reprehensible. But this helps us to begin to answer the question, why does God allow some of us to suffer affliction, perhaps over a long period? That is his way of answering our prayer, perhaps, in a much better way than we had been able to conceive of. It's a much better way he has of showing his love for us. In his inscrutable way, and this is where faith comes in, in his inscrutable ways, his mysterious ways, of helping us to keep the flesh under, to endure affliction, to learn the lesson that some of us find it awfully hard to learn. And he in love is doing this. And it explains the reason why sometimes one brother doesn't receive the answer that he wants when he wants it. And it explains the reason why perhaps some of us, some who are able to respond in a much better way than others, find perhaps their affliction lifted sooner than others. But those that don't can take courage. They're in good company because they're with the Apostle Paul if they have his same spirit of resignation. 
and are able to learn the same lesson that he learned under affliction. But brethren and sisters, that takes faith. Does it mean we don't come to God? No. It means that we sustain ourselves more and more in that kind of a situation through prayer. Brother Ralph just gave us the thought there. That it was only through prayer at his hour of going through the valley of the shadow, which he came very close to. It was the only way he could sustain himself. And brethren and sisters, it's the only way we can sustain ourselves. Now, our thought is, we need each other in these matters. The ecclesia is privileged to enter into a situation, in such a situation collectively where there's a power of great good that can come out of it. We don't expect miracles. If we go to the bedside of a sister who's paralyzed, our help is limited. We're not going to pray that she get up and walk because there we are praying for a miracle. And we know from the Word and experience that the days of miracles is past. But we can give her that aid and help and comfort and solace. We can help her to realize it through our collective prayers for his or her well-being. That, her, that she or he in her, her hours of loneliness may not be able to attain to. Brethren and sisters, you and I can do that. And I think our ecclesias need to be conscious of that fact more and more and to make use of the power of prayer that lies in a proper interpretation and response to James' message to those of his generation. All right, Brother Charles. understand your point correctly, Charles. There's a quick answer to your question. But what is it? Well, thy will be done is the, is the thought. Now, it, we, we have, after all, not the brother's immediate well-being in mind. Uh, 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 we have his ultimate well-being in mind. Now, if it's God's will that this brother recover, and we have his far-reaching well-being in mind, we're going to say, 
thy will be done with his ultimate welfare in mind, not with the thought, let him recover and stumble and fall. So that's why we bring God into this matter as the controlling, after all, the deciding uh, uh, factor in the case, not our arbitrary wishes, not our arbitrary desires, but his will be done with just the thought in mind you have. He knows the beginning from the end. That's right. He knows it's possible. Brother Woodville, say, uh, 80 years old, something might have happened in his life, uh, that he would have him to stone. That's right. Whereas, uh, his life up to this point has been pleasing uh, to God, and like he said, he's not going to be tried if this brother's probation is finished, and only the Lord knows that, if this brother you have in mind, if his probation is finished, and he were, it, it's the goodness of God then to take him out of the situation. So if he dies, he's still in God's care and keeping, isn't he? God's will and over uh, and foreknowledge of the matter enters into that situation. And so we pray, Thy will be done, and God, who does all things well, knowing the beginning and the end, answers it in accordance with His foreknowledge. Sister? Well, uh, I wanted to ask you a question about the 14th verse. We know that we don't think. Oh, I don't know how many people say it. No. Couldn't that anointing be the word that the brothers go and pray and discuss things with the truth to all of the word with the brothers and sisters? Would that be the modern day anointing that all of us? What's the reaction of the class to that thought? Brother Gang, in this respect about what he said, just what you said. I now, wait a minute. Let's, let's, let's. Are we going to back to Charles, or are we going yeah, to answer, Sister? Yeah, something that you made a comment All right. about. Isaiah 57, 1 says this, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth his heart, and merciful men are taken away, not none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Mm -hmm. so That's a good thought. Person. That's a very good thought, and that's an excellent, excellent thought. Good of course, to draw together the thoughts we have endeavored to consider during the several classes this week on this subject. And we want to cover as much ground as we can. So we'll give attention to the reading of Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as, a hypocrite, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, 
for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our de debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, that chapter is one that's familiar to us, especially the Lord's Prayer from our probably earliest childhood. It's well that it should be, but it's perhaps unfortunate that even though the world is the Christian world is familiar with it. The meaning and secret of it is lost to so many. In uh, Luke's account of this same incident, when the Lord answered their questions, he records a detail which Matthew does not tell us. He tells, them, tells us that one of the disciples came with a request, Lord, teach us to pray. And it was in answer to that request that this uh, prayer was uttered on this occasion. And it's certainly a request that we could all join in. And we would do well to make if we had the same wonderful opportunity as his disciples did. For we realize it's our duty to follow the admonition, as we've studied this week, to pray always, to pray without ceasing, in everything to give thanks. And, as we have also pointed out, we perhaps sooner or later come to the realization that prayer, accompanied by faith, can become the most powerful things in our spiritual lives and can enable us to become more useful, more acceptable in our service to our Heavenly Father. And so, like Jesus' disciples, we need very frequently and very earnestly to echo the spirit of that request, Lord, teach us to pray. For some years, there has the spirit of that seems to have been caught by a certain poet 
And I, I like the way it is expressed. This may be familiar to some of you, but it's entitled, Teach Us to Pray, Teach Me to Pray. Teach me to pray, Lord God in heaven above. Teach me to know that in thy boundless love thou seest every sparrow that may fall and doest what is best and givest what is best for all. Although my ways are laid in pastures drear, though burdens seem more than my soul can bear, that in thy love thou gavest them to me. Teach me to put my trust in thee. Teach me to pray, to take my woes to thee, with faith that thou wilt someday set me free, and give me strength to conquer every day. Father in heaven, teach me to pray. That is the spirit that this request was probably couched in. Now let us no note carefully the wording of the request. They didn't, uh, the, the, uh, the request was not teach us how to pray. Every Jewish child from its earliest childhood knew how to pray. By this time there had developed in the Jewish ritual or worship the prayer book approach, unfortunately, where memorized prayers, routine set prayers, had developed. And they knew how to use those fixed uh, prescribed prayers, and they did them, many of them, very religiously. The, every Jewish male, every morning, got up, put on his phylacteries, and uttered the Shema, the words of which were very well expressed from Scripture in the language that we are very familiar with. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, as they repeated it in their own words. So they knew how to pray, but so often without fixed thought behind it. And this is the danger to us of a fixed, memorized prayer. It lacks that fervor and that spontaneity, which with proper preparation, with proper drinking in of the examples and words of Scripture which we have studied this week, we should be better prepared to use in our approach to our Father. Our human weakness is that prayer can become a set form of words without proper thought and without the accompanying sincerity. And thus, we wonder sometimes if the Father can look with that favor upon them that we would like to hope that he looks. Whether our hearts are in this matter is a thing we only can determine, but God knows. And they had observed Jesus very often, worn and weary and near exhaustion at the end of a, a hot day's work, 
traveling and teaching and preaching up and down the dusty roads of the land, giving himself to the crowds as he ministered to them. And they had seen him leave them at the day's end and go up into the hills alone, into the quiet hills of the countryside. And they knew that there he continued very frequently all night in prayer to his father. And they had seen him return in the morning, alert, strong, and spiritually revived from that vigil. And they desired to know the secret of this, of this revival, how they too might pray as he prayed and find that spiritual strength and divine help that he found. That was one of the reasons for their request. They wanted to be more like their master, just as we should yearn and long and pray to be more like our master. And by prayer, by the example that he set, and by realizing something about him and his prayers, we can be helped in that direction. And so that request, Lord, teach us to pray. He knew their wishes, he knew their needs, even before he asked them. They were asked. And he answered them according to their needs. He said, as we have read in this chapter, after this man prayed, not according to this fixed form of words, but with your hearts and minds recognizing and expressing simply and sincerely the things that this prayer includes. The Lord's Prayer was given by him primarily for our daily needs, our individual needs as children of God, and is to be offered as he instructed them in that verse 6, which says, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy chamber or closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Its spirit, that is, the spirit of the Lord's Prayer, and the essence of it, suits itself to all personal and private occasions, and is our individual pattern prayer. The substance of it is what we need to absorb in our thinking and to reflect in our prayers. Now the first obvious thing we note about the Lord's Prayer is its brevity. It's few, thoughtful, well-chosen, simple words that any child from a very early age can learn, can understand. It takes about a half minute to say thoughtfully and sincerely the Lord's Prayer. But it contains an abundance of feeling, thought, and petition that gives attention to all those things that we need to give daily expression to God as his children. As followers of Christ, they contain those things with which God is pleased 
and which helps to strengthen our spiritual well-being. It's one of the most wonderful collection of words it's possible to conceive to the glory of God and to the uplifting of the human mind in its need for God and in, 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 in its acknowledgement of that need, the Lord's Prayer. Let's look, let's consider the opening words. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus could call God my Father. He was Jesus' Father in the literal sense of the word. We, by adoption into the household of faith, by becoming brethren and sisters of Christ, we can call him then, through Christ, our Father. Jesus was the only one who could call him my Father. But we, through Christ, have the right of approach to our Father, which art in heaven. And here Jesus is holding him up to us as a loving father, though high above us, the creator. And yet he is held out to us there and we approach him as a father that pitieth his children, that knoweth our frame, that remembereth that we are dust, to whom we look for every good and perfect gift. And that opening phrase reminds us of that and brings us to him as little children. Emptying up ourselves, offering the sacrifice of praise continually. And a person who hasn't emptied themselves of all which is in opposition to God and does not make the conscious effort to do that cannot really offer that sacrifice of praise cannot really come to him as a little child without all the guile and all the self-sufficiency that acts as a barrier to his hearing our prayers. Think about it. How much we need to empty ourselves of our own egos, of all that stands between us and our Father, and come to him as little children, offering a prayer to our Father, which art in heaven. The recognizing of him as the source of our life, the supreme being, which art in heaven, the guide of our every step, and yet who is the architect and creator of the boundless universe, who orders every happening in it from everlasting to everlasting. We recognize that in that simple opening phrase, if we are joining in it from our hearts. Hallowed be thy name, sanctified, exalted be thy name. How wonderful it is that despite our lowly position, we poor creatures of the dust have been placed in a position where we can bless and hallow and sanctify the name of God in our lives and in our prayers. It's the greatest privilege, again, we remind ourselves that human beings 
can aspire to. And you and I, brethren and sisters, are given that privilege in prayer. Do we really appreciate it? Do we really? He finds pleasure in our doing it. We come to his throne of grace. We commune with him. We pour out our hearts to him in praise, in thanksgiving, in gratitude. Or, as we know from our own experiences again, in grief, in sorrow, in perplexity, at the troublous course our lives may have taken. And he hears us and answers us according as he knows best. As he knows best the needs we have and according to the measure of our faith in coming to him. How wonderful it is, poor creatures as we are, we have this great and ever-ready Father and Friend, Helper, through Christ, to carry our daily burdens, respond to our needs, increase our faith, and give greater meaning and purpose to our lives. That's what God does for us. And he does it in great measure because of and through our prayers. And along with this, the brethren especially, again, we want to remind ourselves that have the privilege of leading in public prayer those whom they are petitioning God for help leading them, leading the assembly in blessing and petition to God. When we pause to think, brethren, of that grave responsibility, do we really appreciate how great it is and how we should have prepared ourselves before coming to that sanctified occasion of how we should have prepared ourselves to do that. The flesh does not always keep itself in preparation. There are too many distractions, and we need very consciously to realize what we are doing, what we must be prepared to do in this matter. Because we are leading again, we remind ourselves, the congregation to the throne of grace and through Christ presenting, presenting a petition on their behalf. It, it, is, it takes a very conscious effort to really appreciate how great that is. That we are speaking to God through our mediator for those who are joining with us in public approach to him through prayer. How often do we perhaps unconsciously and unfittingly frame what we have to say for those whom we know are listening to us rather than to him to whom we are praying. All of us have sometime or other had the experience of attending a service and heard a lengthy prayer, obviously addressed and intended 
or it isn't addressed, but it's obviously framed to impress the congregation, to impress the listeners with the ability of the one praying, rather than to remember that we are addressing the throne of God. And it's to him our words are intended and addressed. That is one of the things we must keep constantly before us in our responsibility as brethren leading, in the, con leading the congregation in prayer and worship and praise. We do well to remind ourselves in that connection with verse 7 of this chapter. And when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. After blessing and hallowing the Father's name, Jesus then prays, as we'll note, for the fulfillment of his purpose in this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven as it is in earth, in earth as it is in heaven. There's a wealth of thought and meaning implicit in that phrase. For when that is accomplished, all mankind will find an indispensable, indescribable happiness in this blessedness that will result from the will of God being done from pole to pole. This petition brings the covenant promises before our minds. It brings them to remembrance, those to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the fathers of old. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was a promise to Abraham. And that promise will be fulfilled when God's name is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's included in our prayer. Also are brought to mind the words of David, the words to David, He, thy son, shall build a house for my name. You, brethren and sisters, and I, we hope, are in process of that building, a house fitly framed together, growing in honor and glory to his holy name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The realities thus of the kingdom are brought before us in that phrase. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The kingdom then is daily brought before us as a reality, not as an a, a, a ethereal thing. We were talking just morning at breakfast about the realities of the worship, the eating and drinking before the Lord in his temple. We need to think very consciously of that because today the the things that crowd in upon us in our daily lives do nothing to contribute to that thought. And that's our hope, brethren and sisters. And that hope is more sure and more real through faith than the things about us. We know what the apostle says. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen, they are eternal. This prayer helps us to realize the reality and the eternity of the things for which we pray. And now Jesus, having blessed his Father's name, having given attention to the promise made unto the fathers, he turns to our daily needs. Very simply, give us this day our daily bread. The diaglot puts that very nicely. 
give us this day our necessary food. Not more than is necessary, but just our necessary food, sufficient for each day. Not tomorrow's food, or next week's, or next year's, but bread for today, that we may live today with all its demands and all its needs that they will be met by God's care and abundant providing. Give us this day, sufficient for this day, our necessary food. The Master enlarges on this thought in this same chapter, and let's bring it again before us. When he continues to say them in verses that follow, beginning at verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are there you not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his statue? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed by like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles or heathen seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. A proper approach to God in the pattern of the Lord's Prayer will remind us of all these things and we will limit our request to those simple needs that God has promised to provide to those who love Him. Jesus' prayer continues and forgive us our debts our trespasses, as we forgive our debtors, those whom we feel have trespassed against us, those whom we feel have perhaps unjustly or without reason offended us. We need to often ponder very seriously this part of this prayer. That our forgiveness from God, brethren and sisters, depends upon or is measured by limited by our forgiveness of others. Somebody may say, well, I, I can forgive, yes, I can, but I can't forget. Is that the way, brethren and sisters, we think of our Father dealing with us? Is that the way he, we, we, we feel that we would like Him to deal with us? Forgiving but not forgetting our failures? 
The psalmist tells us the extent of God's love and mercy in that 103rd Psalm we read the other day. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pitieth his children, he knoweth our frame, he remembereth our weaknesses, that we are dust. But this may be the most difficult part of this prayer for us to sincerely enter into or appreciate or attain the spirit of. And there we have a struggle, brethren and sisters, with ourselves. And if we don't overcome, the answer is apparent. Forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. When a group of differing human personalities are drawn together by the gospel in the closeness of ecclesial life, it's inevitable that some personal offenses, some hurts, unintended perhaps, are inevitable. Uh, the Master's words on another occasion says it's impossible but that offenses will come. And having foreseen this then, mutual compassion, forbearance, patience, love, and prayer for one another, one for another, are the things called for by Christ as the necessary qualities to meet that situation. It is impossible for a brother or sister to pray for a brother or sister who has given them offense and not as a result of a sincerely uttered prayer in that direction. They will rise above with God's help, the weakness of the flesh that might linger there. But they must ask God for that help if they do not find it within their own hearts. Because unless God helps us in our weakness at such a time, then there's something very serious to think about in the future. Through this prayer, we're helped then sincerely uttering it, sincerely thinking about it, to rise above the weakness of our flesh. Jesus reiterates the importance, he emphasizes the importance of this matter because when the prayer is finished, he immediately again returns to this very thought. He, he ends his prayer in verse 13, but in verses 14 and 15, he re again repeats, for if ye forgive not men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will all, for if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So he emphasizes it again, a reiteration for his knowledge, because of his knowledge of our need, our pressing need for this, in, in this particular uh, facet of this matter. Now verse 13 continues with this very necessary daily petition. Lead us not into temptation or trial, but deliver us from evil. The brethren and sisters of Christ must expect all the daily cares, all the distresses, and all the problems which other men have. 
and perhaps God in his goodness sometimes, in order to hasten or order to help us more directly in the problems we have of smoothing off some of our rough edges and to get rid of our perfections, he seems sometimes to allow some trials that others do not have. But there is this great difference, brethren and sisters, in comparison to the trials other men have. His sure promise in this whole matter that he will never try us above our ability to bear it, but with the trial will provide a way of escape, a way out. And we have already considered that prayer itself provides a way of escape. It gives us that strength to carry on. It also helps us to recognize the way of escape which we otherwise might overlook in, our, in the blindness of our own hearts. Uh, Phillips, in his translation of that 13th verse of the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians puts it this way. No trial has come your way that is too hard for flesh and blood to bear. But God can be trusted not to allow you to suffer any trial beyond your powers of endurance. He will see to it that every trial has a way out so that it is never impossible for you to bear it. Do we believe that? That's 1 Corinthians 10:13 from Philip's translation. Do we really believe that? Do we have confidence in it? Do we rest in it? If so, brethren and sisters, we are resting in the Lord, and we will be praying to him constantly, daily, instantly, in order to keep our hold on the lifeline that binds us to him, the lifeline of prayer. And Jesus closes this prayer with a note of praise to God again. He opens and closes it with that most important facet. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So be it. How wonderfully, how fitting, how perfect this prayer is. It's our pattern prayer, brethren and sisters, our guide, and we should bend every effort every fiber of our minds to learn the lesson in all respects for which this prayer is given to us. Each word is so simple, each phrase is so fitting in the mind that is attuned and wishes to conform to the mind of Christ. It teaches us the, the importance, and this is a most important thing, of suiting our prayers, both public and private, to each occasion. Turn to, in that connection, to Exodus, the 30th chapter, and verses, we'll begin at verse 34, and read a few verses.
Verse 34. The Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, stacti, anica, galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be a like weight. And thou shalt make a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small, and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee, it shall be unto thee you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof, it shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that, to smell thereto shall even be cut off from the people. Now here we have, in combination with the thought, that this incense offered before the Lord morning and evening was typical of what? We've already discussed it. The prayers of the saints, we are told by John in the Revelation. And you recall the words of the psalmist, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So then our minds in this matter go back, and we attempt to draw the lesson from the incense, and its preparation, and its acceptance, its acceptable offering before the Lord. It was to be compounded carefully, of certain ingredients, of proper measure, of proper weight, each carefully uh, uh, selected and blended and offered in, how does it say, uh, each shall be of a like weight. That is, the ingredients were to be in proper balance and proportion, each carefully weighed out, and compounded. It was to be beaten small. It was to be ground up thoroughly in the, in the minds is our type. We're to think about it and we're to balance it and we are to offer it, not in lumps, but beaten small before the Lord. It was to be offered only to the Lord. We are to worship the Lord our God, offering Him our prayers. Him only shall we serve. This was, of course, uh, a very impressive lesson to those of the first century who were being drawn back into idolatry. But we in our days can offer our adoration and worship to things in our own time which here we are taught a certain lesson God only shall we be approach, shall we approach and look to for salvation him only shall we worship him only shall we offer the sacrifice of our praise continually the fruit of our lips it was consumed by the divine fire taken from the altar of sacrifice. So prayer is a burnt offering, a sacrifice, the complete absorption of hopes, desires, will, and purpose in the service of God. 
a perpetual incense before Yahweh throughout your generations. Death was the penalty for offering strange incense, inappropriate prayers and requests. Now, Brother Mansfield, in his little book, Making Prayer Powerful, has given a very fine, uh, brief, uh, some very fine, brief information on the source of the several uh, elements that we have read of in this chapter, the sweet spices that were to be offered of like weight. It's interesting. Stacti is mentioned as the first and according to Brother Mansfield, it's a kind of myrrh brought forth from a tree by a deep gash in its branches. Thus, the principle of sacrifice is suggested. Paul declares that I may know him and the power of, and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. If in prayer we accede in the will of the Father to the will of the Father, we will sacrifice our own desires. The word describing the stacti or storics in Hebrew is netef, which signifies a liquid drop, thus a tear. How appropriate tears are, and how often they are mentioned. They are offered up with strong crying and tears. We, in our own experience, may have offered such prayers. Stacti reminds us of that. It's from the root translated drop and signifies to prophesy or to proclaim the will of God. The suggestion is, this suggests that prayer must be according to the divine will. The second one was Annika. That was made from a white seashell found on the shores of the Red Sea thus suggesting deliverance. When burnt, this gave a pleasant odor. It speaks of the realization of the divine help and presence, our utter dependence on God and his ability to deliver us. Galbanum. This was an acrid smelling preparation when burnt. It is said that its main use was keeping serpents away. Very significant thought, isn't it? When uh, surely a suggested inference for prayer. Its Hebrew name, that is of Galbanum, is Kileb and has reference to fat. The fat was always burnt in sacrifice and symbolized a person's energies consumed in divine service. So we should pour out our energy in prayer. Frankincense was the next. It was, a, it was the fruit of a spice tree which yields a white gum at the slightest scratch, speaking of the ready response to prayer at all times. The Hebrew name for frankincense is lebona and signifies whiteness, that is, purity. Prayer should be such, pure, without false motives or ostentation. And he comments on the like weight. Prayer must be balanced. There is a place for thanksgiving as well as requests. 
of praise as well as petition. In verse 35 we read that it was to be salted. Prayer both preserves and gives flavor. It is an element Salt both preserves and gives flavor. It, it was an element of sacrifice. Prayer is the sacrifice of lips and must not be insipid. It must be linked with the preserving elements of the covenants of promise. It must be pure and holy. That is, the ingredients. Otherwise, prayer is an abomination to the Father. There's a lot there of, uh, I think, of considerable interest and produces some very uh, excellent thoughts along certain lines. And that is what we had brought ourselves to in this consideration. It teaches us the importance of suiting our prayers, both public and private, to each occasion, composed of the qualities in proper measure that suit that occasion. Again, we come back to the thought of the brethren whose lot it is to lead the congregation in prayer to God. There are usually, there are, that is in our meeting, many meetings vary, but in our own meeting there are usually five prayers at each of our Sunday services. The Sunday school prayer, the opening of the Sunday school, the opening of the meeting for worship, the two prayers for the memorial, and the closing prayer. Each brethren and sisters, especially brethren, should be suited to, a, to the time and purpose in securing God's blessing and guidance so that it may be acceptable to him. Our prayer at the opening of the Sunday school should be obviously composed of praise to God, thanksgiving for his past blessings, and a petition that he will bless our efforts in the studying of his word, that we may ourselves be better enlightened, and thus better students and teachers of his word, that we may be better discharge our duty to the children, our families and our friends, and of those who are seeking the wisdom which is from above, and such proper prayer helps our children to realize what it means to be drawn to God in thanksgiving, to be drawn to their Creator in thanksgiving for what He's done for them. Their hearts are then acceptable to God, and He looks with favor on those for whom we're praying. Thus our hearts are prepared for what we're about to do in the Sunday school. And then the very important opening prayer for our worship should be simple, well phrased, from the heart with true sincerity, praising and blessing the Father, thanksgiving for his abundant and varied blessings and his care in so many ways. A fervent remembrance of the absent one who through illness or other distresses especially need his loving care and his comfort and his keeping, the comforts of the truth, and his care for them in their hours of distress. Further petition 
of his blessing on the powers that be, which he has ordained that in their rule over us we may continue to lead, to find the peace, and to lead the lives of quietness, that we enable us to come to him as he would have us do. The petition for his coming kingdom should be in that prayer. The realization of his, of his promises to the fathers of old. And the recognition of our great need for his mercy, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, follow as a very fitting part of such a prayer. As well as his blessing on the, on the ministrations of the word, the words of those whose lot it is to speak and to exhort in the word that what may be done may have its proper end in strengthening and upbuilding the assembly and thus causing the Father's name to be glorified and collectively re redound to, in word and deed, to him as our Father in heaven. These are the essentials any opening prayer for worship. There are other things you may think of. But those are essentials. But especially when we come to the next two prayers, those for the bread and the cup, they are entirely different prayers than those, who have, those which have gone before. They are to be composed of other proper things in proper weight. Nothing is to be omitted that is essential. Remember, had the incense of old, which we've just been studying, not been properly composed, not been some element omitted, which had been instructed, what would have happened? Would that incense have risen to the Father and had the acceptance by him? These things then become very serious when we look at them as they should be considered. The purpose of the brethren leading in those prayers is possibly the most serious of any exercise that is done at the morning worship. For at that moment, if any other, they are offering that sweet incense before the Father, as did the priests of Israel of old. They are leading the brethren and sisters to the throne of God, as did Christ. When he gave thanks for the bread and the cup on the night in which he was betrayed. And when we stop to think of it, the responsibility resting on a brother at such occasion is one from which the flesh shrinks when that responsibility is realized. And when it is understood, then the brethren involved begin to realize the necessity for preparing themselves through prayer beforehand to be qualified to discharge that great, great responsibility. The substance of these two prayers is properly concentrated upon that which is memorialized in the bread and the fruit of the vine, that is, upon the life and death of our Lord and Savior the giving of his body, the pouring out of his blood. 
Yes, and included is the thought of his glorious resurrection, without which you and I would have no hope. That is all a part of that which the bread and wine is designed to remind us, and which is a part of the sweet incense that ascends to the Father, as acceptable as the prayers, the acceptable prayers of his saints. In these prayers is concentrated the essence of the remembrance of our Lord and Savior and what was accomplished in his death, his burial, his resurrection. And here, no doubt, many of us have had a very disconcerting experience. How utterly it is, how utterly unfitting it is, as some of us have known to happen, the very embarrassing occasions when the brother has been called to offer thanks for one of the two emblems. And perhaps with well-intended, enthusiasm. In his prayer, he leads the assembly through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Perhaps 10 or 15 minutes I have observed in some occasions of gatherings are spent. And he then forgets to mention the subject of the prayer. He forgets that he was called upon to offer thanksgiving for the bread or the cup. It's a most serious matter, brethren and sisters, when we relate it to the fact of the care that Israel were to give to the compounding of the incense which was offered to the Lord to make it acceptable. I don't quite know the answer to the situation, the only answer I've been able to satisfy myself with is for myself to utter very quietly from the heart a thanksgiving before I partake of that hymn. I don't know of a better way to meet the situation. Does anyone here have a suggestion along that line? It happens. I've heard it happen not too long ago. And yet it's a most serious thing and one which the brother should be extremely conscious of in the responsibility he's discharging. Brother Al? I've heard it happen. I've also been present when the presiding brother said we will now return thanks for the particular hemorrhage and again. Did he do it? Yes. He did. That perhaps is, it might be a better solution. The brother who had failed would never forget, I don't think, again. Yet I wonder, it would take a bit of a struggle for him to rise above. The heart is a very deceitful thing. It's something to think about. But it's something for us to be very conscious of, brethren, that it can happen, and it can happen to us if we fail to appreciate and rise to the responsibility of the occasion. The closing prayer, simply or fittingly, a simple benediction upon the Father's name with thanksgiving for the hour of spiritual refreshing. Its meaning 
including perhaps a heartfelt request for continued blessing and care throughout the coming week. In thus observing the fitness of proper prayer for all purposes and times and places, where God's blessing and help, his worship and praise are remembered, so prayer is given us as a means of bringing our lives and thoughts into harmony, into closer harmony with God, of bringing him more consciously into our lives as our Father and our friend. We, through prayer, then, unite ourselves with him in his mind and in his purpose. And in our collective prayers together, brethren and sisters, they can and should be the means of causing us, as a body before God, to be knit together in those bonds of love and unity, which, when Christ, who is our bridegroom, potentially, when he is returned, when he's called and manifested us before him as the bride, the lamb's wife, the faithful and obedient servants, the overcomers, those who have endured. When we have been manifested before his throne of grace and he has given us of his own name and nature, when he's presented us to his father, as the bride, the lamb's wife. In that unspeakably glorious and climactic moment, each one composing that body will have reason to join in that great song, that great song of praise, prayer of praise. To God, thou hast redeemed us out of every kindred and tongue people, and has made us into our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Brethren and sisters, if you and I are permitted to become a part of that body, it will be largely through coming to God through Christ as our mediator, coming to him with the prayers that have arisen in our hearts and minds, as that sweet incense, which, is, which are the prayers of the saints, which have kept us clean, and pure, and holy in God's sight for Christ's sake. Because it's only through prayer that we can keep ourselves in that kind of a spirit of grace, in that kind of standing before us each day of our lives. And it's my prayer that each of us here may have in some measure profited on this occasion so that we can compose that body. The class is now open for remarks. Sister Bird. Uh, I had no 
You realize the need then for prayers. We each of us should realize our need for the prayers, one for another, the brethren and sisters of Christ, in order to sustain us in any distress or in any rejoicing for the realm. Brother James, on behalf of each and every one of us, it has been a privilege to hear this